Romans chapter 8, verse 5 through 11. Could you please stand with me as I read God's word? And it says this, verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. I want to preach to you this morning on these verses, and I'm going to title my sermon, What is a Christian? What is a Christian? Let's pray and ask God for his help. Father, we thank you for this word. Thank you for the whole book of Romans, through the way that you have spoke to us already in this book. I pray that you would continue to speak to us through your word. Help me as I preach it that I would preach your truths, not merely my ideas, that, that your people would be shaped and fashioned as you open their hearts to receive your word today. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Let me pull out my correct sermon notes here. I almost preached a sermon that I preached in Atlanta last week. And if they get all confused and I just jump sermons, you, know, you now know why. I think we're good to go. What is a Christian? What a big question that is. I recently read of a, an old Honda that had a Tesla motor put into it. And I thought, that is exactly what I should have done when my Honda Accord bit the dust. Should have taken the motor out, the engine out, and put a Tesla motor in it. Let me turn this around for the sake of my illustration. Imagine for just a moment that I took two-by-fours and I made a frame. And then on that frame, I, I, I bolted in a Tesla front end. And a Tesla back end. And I put those cool like Tesla doors on the side. You know the kind of doors? I don't know if you've ever been in a Tesla. I had a first ride in a Tesla when I was in uh, New Mexico a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago. It was an Uber driver that had a Tesla. I'm like, this dude is legit, right? I couldn't even figure out how to get into the thing. You had to like push a button and, you know, put some Tesla doors on this frame, put a Tesla top on it, Tesla... Get some brand new Tesla uh, uh, tires, four Tesla tires. Do I have a Tesla? It looks like a Tesla. You push a button and it opens like a Tesla. 
The problem is you get in and there's nothing on the inside. Listen, a person who pursues the Christian faith through outward change, through trying to look like a Christian, but fails to have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them is like trying to sell a Tesla with no motor. So this morning, I want to ask the question, what is a Christian? We would never approach car manufacturing through building frames in the same way I just described. They begin with the inside and eventually get to the outside. Yet every week, Christians, quote unquote, I'm intentionally putting quotes around Christians. Every week, many Christians gather in churches trying to figure out how to get the front end right and the back end right and the doors right and the wheels right and the roof right, all the while the Holy Spirit is not dwelling inside of them. We, we don't approach car manufacturing that way, yet so often we believe we can manufacture Christians just simply through external transformation. Are you with me? The Jews in Paul's day, as he's writing the book of Romans, assumed that they were right with God because they had the external correct. They came from a good Jewish home. They know the Torah. They, they've memorized the Ten Commandments. They are f- very familiar with the Mosaic Law. They attend the synagogues. And many Christians think of their Christianity in the same way. They come from a Christian home. They know the Bible. They might even be able to tell you all the books of the Bible. Probably not in order, but at least they can get most of them. Um, they, they, they may have memorized the Ten Commandments. They could tell you what Christians should do. And they can tell you what Christians don't do. And they present as if they do what Christians should do. And they don't do. And they don't think about the things that Christians should not do. They are externally looking like a Christian. Not to mention they're in church every Sunday. And they assume Like many religious folks in Paul's day, they assume that they are a Christian. However, the Spirit of God is not alive in them. Jesus is not the center of their life. They don't actually feel godly conviction and they don't feel godly remorse, only man-centered shame. And that leads them to prop up the outside And keep people at a distance for fear that if they actually peek inside the Tesla, they'll discover discover there's nothing there. They never open up the passenger door of their life and actually allow Christians to come in. Why? Because they're afraid of what will actually be discovered, that the Holy Spirit is not dwelling in their life. They're hiding their sin. They're hiding uh, uh, the, 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 the things that they truly love, which go against the Spirit. And they, they have done so well that they actually even convinced themselves that it's the external that really matters. And they believe and they hope 
And maybe they even fear that they won't be able to maintain this until that day they stand before God and fool God himself. If I've just described you, just know that God can't be fooled. You might fool us. We can even fool ourselves. But God tests the Spirit. Verse 9 describes the Christian. He says this, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in fact, what does he say? The Spirit of God, what does it say? Anybody with me in this? Dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. There was a bumper sticker which read, if you, are, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Good question. We're in the book of Romans. If you're new with us, we have just been walking through the book of Romans, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We have spent the last two weeks just relishing in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, which reads, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we talked about how no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus is the very heart of the gospel. And the gospel is the very heart of Christianity. And so we've just been relishing in that for the last couple weeks as we've been in Romans. What we discovered is that Romans 8.1 sums up all that Paul covers in Romans chapter 1 verse 7. Which what we discovered was this, was that God is doing something through his grace, through us, in us, in such a way that by the time we get to the heart of the gospel, we discover that we are brought into a new era. Being a Christian is being part of a new era, like a renewed world after the apocalypse, like a, like a new morning after a night of terror, like waking up after death. Verse 1 of chapter 8 is an eschatological reality, meaning the dawn of a new day ha- is, is upon us. Our future hope of No condemnation of recreation of all things, eschatology. Our future hope is experienced, it's beginning, it is dawned now. We are living in light of the future reality that will one day be ours. Now, Christians, having said that, still struggle with sin. We still struggle with sin, yet there's no condemnation. So it doesn't mean that we get ourselves perfect and there's no condemnation. We're still sinners. And we're living in this new era, this new dawn, this new reality of God's grace, of no condemnation. But that leads us then to a mysterious question. And that is, why do Christians pursue holiness? 
If we have no condemnation and we're sinners, then why do we pursue holiness? And Paul, in Romans 6 and Romans 7, has been answering that very question. By the time he gets to Romans 8, he turns it. In some ways, he's still answering that question. He announces the new era that is ours, no condemnation. And then in verse 4, he tells us the purpose. In verse 4, let me remind you, he, says, he said this. In order that, that means here's the purpose for no condemnation, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. What he's saying is this, is we are brought into this new reality so that we might be holy, so that we might walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. Notice he didn't say Christians should walk this way. He doesn't say Christians should try to walk in the Holy Spirit, he said Christians do. We're saved for the purpose that we do walk in step with the Spirit. Now God always acts and saves for a purpose. God saved you so that you might be holy. There is no amount of holiness that can get you saved God saved you, however, so that you might be holy. As I was thinking about this message and wrestling with it and thinking about how I want to communicate it, these verses to you guys this week, I initially was thinking along the theme, how to be holy. And the more I studied it, the more I realized that I'm approaching it the wrong way. The question is not how to be holy, but the question is, what is a Christian? And so that's the approach I want to take today. I want to, if you are a Christian, I want to tell you this morning what you are. And if you're not a Christian, you discover through the study of this text that this doesn't describe you. You are invited this morning to turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ and find the hope of salvation. So what is a Christian? Before we get to that question, uh, we see here in verse 5 and verse 6 two different contrasts, contrasting statements, contrasts. How do you say that? Plural. Contrasts. Verse 5 and verse 6. And in these two different contrasts, we see two lessons on holiness. Number one. Where you set your minds determines how you live. And number two, where you set your minds is a matter of life and death. Let me break this down. Number one, where you set your minds determines how you live. Verse five, it says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the flesh. Of the Spirit. If we set our minds on the things of the flesh, we will live according to the flesh. The things of the flesh. What does that mean? It, it, it sounds sensual, doesn't it? And I think referring to sexual immorality could certainly be a very easy kind of application of this. You know, if we set our minds on sexual immorality, that is, that is our focus on our mindset, that's what we're pursuing, well then we will 
fulfill the deeds of sexual immorality. But flesh, however, is more than just sensual. So remember how Paul uses the word flesh throughout Romans. Flesh is a word that, that uh, is, is kind of like a nickname for every single desire that doesn't line up with God's way as it relates to power, as it relates to money, as it relates to sex, as it relates to his purposes for our life, any and all desires that don't line up with God, all right? The things of the flesh, actions which do not honor God, aspirations which do not exalt God, thoughts which do not please God, lifestyles which do not magnify God, affections which do not cherish God, decisions which do not glorify God, dreams which do not involve God. If we habitually and determinately set our minds on these things, then we will fulfill the deeds of the flesh. What you think about actually matters. Now, in contrast, verse 5 goes on to say, those who live according to the Spirit, in the same way, set the Spirit at the center of their minds. They set their minds on the things of the Spirit. What do they do? They live according to the Spirit. Meaning, our, our godliness is actually a result of setting our minds on the things that the Holy Spirit has revealed through His Word, through Christ, through convicting us of sin, through confirming His truth in our lives, to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. So where do we begin? Well, one easy application is as we think about Bible reading and prayer. Charles Spurgeon, my mentor, only those of you that know Charles Spurgeon would understand how great that is, right? Spurgeon uh, once said that, that with everything that we have to face in modern society, and remember he lived in the 19th century, so very different modern society than we have today. With all the stresses and the worries that we have to face. He said, I can't imagine how anybody can go about their days and face all they have to face without first ascending to the mountaintop and seeing the glory of Christ and only then can they come down and face the world. And so he said for him, he said every morning, he said he has to ascend the mountaintop of God. And by that he means personal Bible reading and prayer. To ascend the mountaintop of God. And then he said, I sit there, meaning I'm just staring at a verse or I'm reading a psalm or I'm reading a passage. I sit there until Jesus shows me his glory. And sometimes this takes five, ten minutes. Sometimes this takes 30 minutes. Sometimes it takes an hour. But I won't leave. I won't descend the mountain until I'm shown the glory of Christ. And only when I experience his glory can I go down the other side and face all that I have to face in our lives. Listen, the best of secular science tells us that what you place your mind on actually determines how you live your day. Meaning, I, I, I listened to an interview this last week with a medical doctor who has been influenced by Buddhism. 
And he's talking about how Buddhist meditation for him is what he does every morning, and it sets his mind right. And he says that, that he, he, he advocates for his patience to meditate. doesn't have to be like Buddhist or whatever, but to, med- to do some kind of meditation every morning. And he says that that meditation sets the whole of your day. And, and it kind of it sticks with you in some ways. Now, I'm not advocating for Buddhist meditation. All right? I'm not advocating just for best practices and let's just journal a couple pages just for the sake of like, you know, to, to put my mindset in the right. What I'm saying is this, is that, is that humans are wired to actually set their minds on something and then live out that life. Does that make sense? Like what you set your mind on is actually how we look. We're wired that way. And what I'm also saying is this, is that even the best of secular science says, hey, what you focus on in the morning matters. So we want to think about like Christian application. It's, it's amazing to me how many Christians don't read their Bible and pray first thing in the morning. I'm just going to be straight up. When even the Buddhist guys are saying that you ought to be doing some meditation. It goes back to our tradition in the Old Testament of morning prayers. Every morning and every evening, the, the, the people of God would pray. And so, simple application, church. Get up in the morning and read your Bibles and pray. Like, set your mind, first thing, on his word. And the way we're wired as humans, which even secularists agree with, is that we will think on these things. Not because they said it. It's because it's the way God wired us. You with me? Now, this text, however, is not about your personal devotions. That's just free. That's a little freebie for you, all right? Uh, That's one little application. To set our minds on the Spirit is to habitually and determinately think on what is good and right and holy and beautiful, the things of the Spirit. To set our minds on actions which honor God aspirations which exalt God, thoughts which please God, lifestyles which magnify God, affections which cherish God, decisions which glorify God, dreams which involve God. So we have to ask ourselves, what do you think about? You know, as you're driving in the car, your mind wanders. Where does it wander to? As you're taking a shower and for 10, 15 minutes, you're just standing in the silence and your mind starts to drift. Where does it drift to? As you think about the hardships of your life, what kind of thoughts are you drifting toward? What are you setting your mind on? What are we strategizing in our minds? Do we strategize good or do we strategize evil? We could even ask ourselves uh, the question in this way. What are you feeding your minds with? What are you placing into your mind? Now, on one hand, this is very practical, and it calls us to think about our minds, meaning it's good to read theology. It's good to read a good Christian book on uh, doctrine or on the Christian life. It's good to have conversations with other Christians that are theological in nature, that are building each other up, that are talking about the Bible. It's good to have regular devotions. Uh, we, we, we ought to strive to set our minds on the kinds of things that lead us to what is right and beautiful. 
But for the sake of this text, this is not merely advice on how to be a better Christian, all right? This is actually life or death. And that's my second point. Where you set your minds is a matter of life and death. Look at verse 6. He says, for to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is peace, or is life and peace. Question, do we actually believe that? I believe the greatest tool of the enemy is to reverse this. And to say to set your mind on the flesh is life and peace. And to set your mind on the spirit is boring. I think that's the tool of the enemy. It goes all the way back to Genesis. When the serpent comes to to Eve in the garden and he says, did God really say this? And what he tells Eve is what? When you, the, the day you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Meaning if you set your mind on the flesh, you're going to be like God. You're going to have good things. You're going to have peace and life. Look, Satan's own fall from glory in Isaiah 41 was the same thing. Satan said this, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. This is the deception of sin. It's the deception of the enemy. To make us believe that to pursue the flesh, to set our minds on the flesh, is actually life and peace. What was Jesus' temptation in the wilderness? When the devil came to Christ for those 30-day periods, that 30-day period, he was tempted, as one person put, with hedonism, egoism, and materialism. Meaning, if you set your mind on the flesh, it's going to give you more material things, you're going to have a better ego, and you are going to have more pleasure. John categorizes it this way. He said Jesus was tempted with the lust of the eyes, that's materialism, the lust of the body, that's hedonism, and the pride of life, and that is egoism. And in our own lives, aren't we tempted the same way? Like, aren't we tempted to believe that sin offers something better than what holiness can offer? But to set our mind, we're told here in verse 6, on the flesh is death. He doesn't say it leads to death, which it does. Capital D, death, eternal death. This is what we understand to be hell, eternal separation from God. Setting our minds on the flesh leads to death. But he doesn't say that, does he? He says to set your mind on the flesh is death. Meaning there's something about pursuing sin that actually brings you death now. Oh, you get the temporal high, you get the energy, you get the surge. It feels good for a while, but what you do is what you discover is that you have to keep on this addiction of sin in order to not fall into despair. To set your mind on the flesh is death in the reverse, but to set our minds on the spirit is, not, doesn't just merely lead to, as if it's in the sweet by and by, one day we'll experience life. No, he says it is life. Now, 
It is peace that passes all understanding that guards your heart and mind now. This is, this is what we have with holiness. Now, you might say, like, I've experienced this, and I know that it's life and peace, but I don't know how to tell that to an unbeliever. I don't know how to convince somebody that living a holy life is actually peace and life. And I would just say this, you can't convince them. It's like, it's like watching TV with a 4K ultra high D uh, uh, display. And then trying to go tell somebody who's watching black and white analog that 4K ultra HD is better. They don't know it's better. For them, the little black and white TV is pretty sweet. They've never experienced what is better. But what I'm doing, what I'm saying is this is I'm looking at people who have experienced that 4K Ultra HD is better. And I'm not talking about your TVs. Holiness is better. You know it is. You've experienced it. When we pursue God, Godliness is life and peace. And you remember at the beginning I said, look, as we study this, if you find yourself that this doesn't describe you, what I'm saying is this, is if we have an experience that we're not a Christian, this is what Christians have experienced. You know it. If that's not, you turn to Christ now and trust in Jesus and pray that God would awaken you to this reality of life in the spirit. For, to set our minds on the flesh, is what? Death, destruction. Now this is why Christian teaching must focus on what the Holy Spirit has actually revealed in his word. This is why when I preach, I can't just shoot from my hip and just talk to you and make you laugh and tell you a bunch of cool things that make you feel good. Because that's not Holy Spirit revelation. Christian teaching must be the Spirit. Churches that focus on success, for example, how to be successful, but they never talk about holiness, are setting their minds on the flesh, but not on things of the Spirit. Churches that talk about the Holy Spirit. And the great power that you can have in the Holy Spirit. And the great things that you can do and accomplish and become with the Holy Spirit. But they never talk about godliness. They're missing the Holy Spirit, ironically. So, so we need to set our minds on the Spirit. Why? Well, we're told in verse 7. Look at verse 7. He says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. What you win people with is what you keep them with. And if we win people with fleshly incentives to Christianity, will be one with flesh, and they will be kept with the flesh, and you will build a church of unregenerate people. And what he tells us here is that the unregenerate person is actually hostile to God. And you might say, hold up, Paul, you're being a little extreme. Like, hostile 
to God. I mean, there's people that do good. I, I've got non-Christian friends that are really fine people. Like, I know people of different religions that I really like a lot and they're good. How, how can you say they are being hostile to God? Well, Paul would first say, hey, I agree with my friend James who said friendship with the world is enmity, enmity with God. Same word. Hostility doesn't mean that we're aggressive toward God. It's a putting off of. Um, one, One commentator put it like this. He said, I'm eliminating God as far as I'm concerned. As I live my life, I'm organizing my life apart from his word, his ways, his work, and his worth. That's what it means to be hostile to God. So therefore, even the good that we do, we have to actually get underneath them if we're unbelievers and say, why am I actually doing the good that I do? If it's organized apart from the glory of God, then it's actually hostility to God. If I'm doing good things in order to make myself feel better or to make myself have a right standing with God or to try to earn my own righteousness or try to earn my own approval, all of that's like hostility to God. Why? Because we find our approval and our righteousness and our right standing in Christ. And so we're saying, I don't need Jesus. So clearly here, Paul In these verses, unlike I believe in chapter 7 of Romans, Paul is not talking about Christians who struggle with sin. Paul is actually talking about two different categories, Christians and non-Christians. Two types of people, regenerate and unregenerate. Why? Well, he says it's because they cannot please God, they do not submit to God's law. Well, see, even a Christian struggling with sin can please God. He's referring to those that cannot. Why? That's where we got to go next. I'm out of time, so I have to close as fast as I can. All right? Stay with me quickly. Listen quickly. Can you listen fast? I love verse 9. Somebody say, you, however. That's how he starts it. Verse 9, you, however. You. So, uh, unregenerate people, they cannot please God. They have no care for God. They are hostile to God. And then he looks at the Christian and he says, you, however. You see the turn there. Who is the you he's talking about? Well, if we go back to Romans 6, Romans chapter 6, verse verse 11, he says this, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So Paul has been talking to a you. And what he's saying is, is you are the ones who are dead to sins, you're alive in Christ Jesus. He's continuing that conversation with a certain people, and that is the regenerate believers. Turning back to them, he's saying, you, however, you, however. This is encouraging for us because we don't earn the status of no condemnation. It's all built into the gospel. There is no amount of holiness that the Christian can do which can earn salvation. Yet, 
There is no Christian that does not pursue holiness. Because that's the purpose. That's why we're saved. So the big idea here is that our actions in verse 5 through, uh, verse five through 8, our actions are based on who we are. Or if I could sound like a professor, the, 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 the practical comes from the ontological. Does that sound smart? Meaning how we practically live our lives, whether it's based on the flesh or based on the spirit, how we live our lives, whether we're pursuing sin or pursuing holiness, how we live our lives is based on who we actually are. And this is why I changed my sermon title to What is a Christian? What is a Christian? Why do Christians pursue holiness? It's because it's who they are. Three three reasons for this. Number one, the Spirit resides in you. We're told here that the Spirit dwells with us. My mentor, Charles Spurgeon, also said this. He said, without the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. We are like ships without wind, branches without sap, like coals without fire. We are useless. And this is why Paul repeats himself in verse 9, saying, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Why do Christians pursue holiness? Because the Spirit dwells in you. Look, some people visit your house. Your aunt might come and visit you, right? We, Friday, we had the youth over to our house, and they visited our house. And before their visit, I told my youth, Jaden and Eden, to get the house cleaned up because we got people coming over. And we got the house straightened up, and they visited, and thanks be to God, they left. No, I'm just playing. <laughs> I loved having them over. But I wouldn't want them all to live with me, all right? They visited, all right? And this is the way a lot of us live our Christian life is we clean up because we know that the Holy Spirit's going to come for a visit. We, we, we try to get things together. We try to, you know, Saturday night, like, man, I, I, I can't do this Saturday night because i got to get up and go to church tomorrow and going to have the Holy Spirit visit me, right? Got to clean up a little bit. The Spirit doesn't come for a visit. It says He dwells in us. It says He takes up residence in us. He comes to live in us. Oh, and by the way, there's no amount of cleaning that you can do that would make an appropriate home for the Spirit. You've tried to clean up your own house. You even hired all of the, the, the best uh, house cleaning services of the world. You listen to all of the, uh, the, the speakers and the books and the motivational talks, and at the end of the day, you could not figure out how to keep your house clean. And my goodness, one day the Spirit showed up, and you thought, I'm not ready for him. i got to get myself together first before the Spirit peeks in, and that's when He gave you life, and he opened your mind and gave you a new heart, and he regenerated you, and you knew that the only way you will ever be clean 
is to fall on your knees in repentance. And the Spirit came in. And when the Spirit came in, what does he do? He cleans house. He cleans house. The Spirit comes in to live. He dwells with us. That's who you are. Your spirit dwelt individuals. Not only some kind of force is living with you, but the Spirit is a very person of God. Spirit of God, we're told. Spirit of Christ, he's called. The Spirit, verse 11, who raised Christ from the dead. This is referring to God, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And as he comes, it's as if Jesus himself moved into your life. This is why we pursue holiness. Spirit resides with us. Secondly, secondly, the Spirit revives. Verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of, the, uh, because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Well, what does he mean, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life? What he's saying is, is that we still live in these bodies of corruption. I've told you before about Lady Jane Grey. It's such a great analogy for this very particular truth. I'm going to use the analogy again. Lady Jane Grey uh, had the throne. She was queen for like nine days until Bloody Mary came in, removed her from the throne, and locked her up in a, t- in a tower. She was 16 years old. And after a number of weeks, an executioner came into her room and, uh, and killed her. She was decapitated. The, the night before her death, her execution, she wrote, let me read it. She said, if justice is done with my body, my soul will find mercy with God. Death will give pain to my body for its sins but the soul will be justified before God. This is interesting because she was wronged in this death. She's not saying that she did anything to deserve a just execution on earth. That's not what she's saying. She was locked up because Bloody Mary, first of all, didn't like, Bloody Mary wanted the throne and Bloody, uh, Jane, Jane was a God-fearing Christian and Bloody Mary was not. Locked her up wrongly, executed wrongly, but she says, death will give pain to my body for its sins. Such theology spewing from the mouth of a 16-year-old the night before her execution. What she's saying is this, is, is my body, my flesh is corrupt. My flesh is dying. My flesh, my, flesh is go, my flesh is still under the curse of sin. We, I ain't going to live forever and you aren't either. That tells you that your flesh is still under the curse of sin. And our, our bodies will die for our sins. But our souls will remain safe with God, justified with God. That's what Lady Jane believed the night she died. And this is what Paul says in verse 10. He says, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life 
because of righteousness, meaning we are revived inwardly. We are new creations inwardly. We have new desires. We, we, we know that we don't want to pursue the flesh, but we want to pursue life. That's what it means to be spiritually alive. D.L. Moody once asked a classroom, he had held up a glass, a drinking glass, and he said, how do I get all of the air out of this glass? One boy raised his hand, he said, we could suck the air out of it. And, and Moody said, no, that'll break, it'll shatter the gra- glass, that won't work. And then Moody takes water and he pours water into the glass and fills it up and he says, this is how you get air out of a glass. And then he applies that to the Holy Spirit. He says, how do we get sin out of the, out of, out of the individual? It's not through sucking sin out. We have to be filled with something better, something other. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. And I like that, and I don't like that analogy, all right? I like it because it's true that there is no amount of self uh, 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 work that we can do that will change us. We have to be changed through the filling of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's how we live different lives. That's how we have new desires. It's not because you're cool. It's not because you got yourself together. It's because the Spirit filled you. I don't like the analogy because it almost feels like we're saying that Christians are perfect. That there is no sin left in them. I think a better analogy would be somehow the cup itself is dissolving into air bubbles and it's just this mix of corruption of pure water and air. Corrupt internally still. Filled with the Spirit, pure, yet our flesh is still causing corruption in us. Does that make sense? So somehow I'm picturing like air bubbles and rising to the surface or something like that. I'll have a conversation with Moody when he's in heaven and see what he thinks about that. When I get to heaven, I mean. But, but what we're told here, though, is, is that the, the body is dead, the spirit is alive. Um, we're still struggling with corrupt sin, yet, third and finally, the story is not over for Lady Jane's body. Look at verse 11. The Spirit restores is my third point. Spirit resides, Spirit revives, Spirit restores. Verse 11. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells, there's the word again, dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. I love this. Because Paul here is taking us back to the flesh in verse 5. And he's saying the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead will one day, guess what? Raise your flesh to new life. Our bodies will be remade. Amen? Amen. The righteousness that we have dwelling in us, that righteousness that we receive recreates our lives. Yes, the devil came to Jesus in the wilderness and tempted him with materialism and hedonism and egoism, but he was ultimately unsuccessful. Jesus did not sin. I saw this video of this raccoon facing a a, a pit bull, trying to scare the pit bull, and the raccoon like flared up his hands 
And the pit bull just kind of stood at him, looking at him, eye to eye, didn't even budge those strong, broad pit bull shoulders. And then the raccoon contorts his body this way and that way. His hairs stand up on the, like this raccoon looks freaky, all right? And the pit bull doesn't budge. When I was watching that video, I thought the devil and Jesus in the wilderness. (laughs) He contorted his body every which way. He came at Jesus for 30 days as hard as he could And Jesus stood with those muscular square shoulders staring at the devil, didn't even budge. But the devil's attempt to destroy Jesus didn't stop in the wilderness. The devil convinced Judas to betray him or to uh, to, to sell him out. The devil convinced Pilate to hand him over. The Sanhedrin did him wrong. Jesus then was condemned by the crowds, handed over to the Romans, and the Romans put him onto a cross and they they drove nails into his feet and his hands. They had a crown of thorns that was pressed into his skull. A spear uh, uh, went into his side. Jesus died. On this cross, the devil threw everything he could possibly throw at Jesus Christ, death itself. And for three days, Jesus lie dormant in the grave. But what we're told in verse 11 is that the spirit of righteousness raised Jesus from the dead. What that tells us is this is that death cannot keep righteousness. The grave cannot keep holiness. Why does holiness matter, church? Why is it that I say that Christians are saved to be holy? It's because that's what resurrection is made of. And you say, oh, well, I'm concerned because even still I look in myself and I see all this corruption. I don't have my own righteousness. And I say, but don't forget the gospel. We're not talking about your personal righteousness. We're talking about his righteousness. As he stood square against the face of our enemy and did not budge. That same spirit of righteousness is in you. And that spirit will one day give you resurrection from the dead. Amen? So, so why do Christians pursue holiness? It's because that's who we are. This morning, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just telling you who you are. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the spirit that we have of righteousness. We thank you for this reminder that we are filled with the spirit of Christ and that we have this great hope. God, I pray that we would experience this as we live our lives, that we would Uh, continue to war against our sin and, and enjoy holiness, that we would set our minds on what is good and right and pure and so fulfill the ways of the Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.